When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley and you're about to listen to episode 25 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. That's pretty cool. We're 25 episodes into this enormous project and it shows no signs of slowing down anytime soon. We go into so much detail with all the stuff that we're talking about here. And one of the great things about all of these episodes is that they form a very important part of the context for the story of what happened 100 years ago. Obviously, that's why you're listening to them, because you're interested in that. But maybe you're also interested in doing something else with this era. Maybe you're interested in having your own say in how things went down. And in talking with people who are just as nerdy, if not nerdier, super nerdy in fact about this era too. Maybe you even are interested in the idea of seeing if you could do better, seeing if you could take 
a stab at negotiating with people and trying to get justice for a country of your choosing, or a country maybe that you never even known existed before. Maybe you want to create a country from scratch from the ruins of the First World War. All these possibilities and so much more await in the delegation game. The delegation game is something which I invented from my crazy brain several months ago. We recently launched the delegation game on the same day that we opened the Paris Peace Conference officially and oh boy has it taken on a life of its own. I really can't express how excited I am for this thing. It has massively exploded. There are now 35 people taking part. We have a Facebook group for the different delegates where they all introduce each other and talk to each other. But the most fun is had in the different Facebook Messenger chats that have been set up for all sorts of different interests, be they America, be they political machinations, such as a constitutional monarchy sorting out Asia, sorting out things among the smaller nations, all sorts of things. It's really fun. And if you're interested in checking into the Hotel Twomley, trust me, it exists in this fabricated version of history, at least I think it does, then do check out the delegation game by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game or click on the link in the description below. For $6 a month, you could be creating somebody, sending them to Paris and getting involved in a whole load of fantastic, absolutely ridiculous history nerd action. So don't delay. Paris has opened its doors to the delegates of the world and this podcast, and there's never been a better time to sign up. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up so far, and yeah, I hope to see you there. By, of course, playing this game, you make me very happy, and you give me a lot of stuff to do and to nerd over with other people, but you also help support this podcast monetarily, which is fantastic. I really should copyright this idea of podcast role-playing, or whatever I should call it, because as far as I know, it's not been done before. Certainly not in a history podcast format like this. Anyone got any ideas about how to do that? Do let me know because I am no way involved in any kind of law or anything like that. I'm kind of ignorant. I spent all of my people points on history. So here I am telling you the story of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Speaking of which, let's get down to it right now.
You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 25. Today is the 21st of January 2019, and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. The building was, in many respects, unimpressive. Hardly the place for a new republic to be proclaimed, or maybe that's confirmed, or is that reimagined. The nomenclature was a bit foggy, but what was not foggy was exactly how significant this act was. It hadn't been particularly well advertised, and the British administration, led by Sir John French of the early British Expeditionary Force fame, had even removed the requirement of a police permit from the whole endeavour. Sir John French thought the whole performance ludicrous, and he gave it little attention. At Dublin's Mansion House, where the Lord Mayor of Dublin traditionally stayed, In the round room, which had been constructed specifically for the purpose of welcoming King George IV to Dublin in 1821, there was gathered the nucleus of Ireland's radical independence movement. Sinn Féin, the inheritor of the 1916 Rising, had won for itself the mandate of Irish political support in the December 1918 general election. While Lloyd George enjoyed a surge in popularity for his coupon coalition, The Irish next door were redefining what it meant to be nationalist. The Irish Parliamentary Party, which had monopolised Irish politics for years with the goal of home rule, that is, limited self-rule for Ireland, had been completely annihilated and supplanted in that general election by Sinn Féin, the Republican movement, which had, erroneously as it turned out, been associated with the doomed rising during Easter week 1916. The Sinn Féin rebellion, as it had been called, evoked passionate feelings and sympathies among the Irish people, only after the British military establishment implemented martial law, arrested thousands of Irish people without trial, and critically executed the ringleaders. A fortnight after the rising had ended, those men who Dubliners had once pelted with rotten fruit were now being hailed as the noblest of heroes and martyrs. It was just as Podrick Pierce, one of the many de facto leaders of the rising, had wanted and imagined. The Rising was never a militarily feasible campaign. Instead, it was a blood sacrifice, a mission to create new martyrs in the 20th century and to invigorate the Irish people in the process. The British, it has to be said, walked right into the trap. And of course, if you want to know more about that, cheap plug the 1916 Rising Centenary miniseries. Believe it or not, we've been inspired by centenaries before to do grand epic examinations of things that happened 100 years ago, So if you'd like to check out this episode of Irish History in more detail, check out that series that came out about two and a half years ago. Anyway, those that gathered at Dublin's Mansion House on this day a hundred years ago were benefactors of this British mismanagement. Indeed, wrote the historian Charles Townsend, if the British government had possessed the composure to consign its leaders to an asylum rather than putting them in front of a firing squad, what followed might have been very different. That the firing squad was the choice of the military governor, Sir John Maxwell, rather than perceptive calm and wise counsel, proved to be a choice that profoundly affected my country's history. As it stood in spring 1918, following two years of agitation and outcry against the British actions, republicanism and the brave stand of the rebels was already becoming national canon. Then, another miscalculation. The decision to impose conscription on the Irish 
just as the German spring offensive was entering its climax, added further fuel to the bonfire. As it happened, the military situation reversed and stabilised itself, and conscription was not needed for Ireland. The suggestion was withdrawn and Sinn Féin claimed victory. It was a massive boost to the organisation's profile, and it seemed genuinely possible now that the movement could put up candidates for election once the war ended. To fully grasp the seismic change which occurred in the 1918 general election, one must compare the results of the last general election from late 1910. A map demonstrating the party's wins cuts an even more devastating profile. Ireland effectively swapped the Irish Parliamentary Party for Sinn Féin, with some exceptions, across the whole island. 73 Sinn Féin MPs were returned, but this victory had come with some caveats. Many of the candidates which Sinn Féin put up had been in prison when they had been elected. This effectively halved the party's people power, but it did not halt the plan. What plan? Those in London could not be entirely sure. What was certain was that Sinn Féin was the party of ruffians. Worse than that, its republican social elements whiffed of Bolshevism, and it was convenient sometimes just to, you know, tar them all with the same brush. If any Sinn Féiners did show up in London to sit at Westminster, it was feared that they would cause a scene and an international embarrassment by publicly refusing to take their seats. They were thus to be arrested on sight. If necessary, the defeated candidates were to take their places, though this was not essential since Ireland had already been under martial law relatively recently, and it would not be too difficult to institute this regime once again. Sir John French was, after all, desperate for a chance to recoup his lost reputation, which the battering of the BEF had tarnished. The pacification of Ireland would grant him the ideal opportunity to do just that. When John French picked up some Sinn Féin contraband in a raid from a week before, some of the materials included the declared constitution of the new assembly and the declaration of independence. It was these documents that convinced French that the Sinn Féin gathering was not to be taken seriously. Its members were clearly delusional and stood no chance of success. French had heard other reports, how the Republican organisations were impassioned and eager to act, but how its administrators dressed in old, shabby clothes, how its run-down offices churned out manifestos on cheap paper and its hardline members spoke in a language nobody could understand. Predictably enough, even while French did not take Sinn Féin seriously, those 34 elected MPs who remained free viewed this event as one of greatest importance and as a race against time to boot. It was imperative that they make these declarations now, before the British parliamentary system resumed in early February and before the Paris Peace Conference went too far. The best way to wrest recognition and favours from the international community was to appear legitimate and stable in its organisation and administration. The whole thing was a spectacle from start to finish. Journalists, over 50 in all, had been invited to attend this gathering from all over the world, and many now sat in this round room, pen and paper in hand, ready to record what was said. It was, by all accounts, an impressive sight. The layout and lighting of the room focused the attention upon the Sinn Féin deputies, who filed into the round room at around half three in the afternoon. The presence of foreign journalists did accrue a certain authenticity to the proceedings. It was certainly a larger turnout than French had expected. It was also more homogenous. No other party save Sinn Féin sent representatives. Neither the Labour Party nor the older, nearly extinct Irish Parliamentary Party was represented. 
giving this event a singular appeal, but also suggesting that the foundations of a one-party state might be being laid. However, if one did look deeper, then it would not have been hard to detect chasms of difference in opinion between even these 34 Sinn Féin deputies. What all gathered could at least agree on was that Ireland must be independent, that it had an undeniable right to exist as an independent state, and that the Irish people had voiced this opinion in the recent general election. Irish republicanism finally had the assent of the majority. This was the strange endorsement of the 1916 message, where the movement and its core aims were adopted, but it wasn't at the same time an endorsement of the use of violence. Politics, after all, had compelled these 34 deputies to gather here. It didn't compel them to launch a repeat of the 1916 Rising. Cahill Brewer, declared as the chairman of this assembly, began by reading out Ireland's provisional constitution, before then launching into arguably the core of the speech, Ireland's Declaration of Independence. This speech reads as follows. The Irish people are, by right, a free people, and for 700 years the Irish people have never ceased to repudiate and have repeatedly protested in arms against foreign usurpation. English rule in this country is and has always been based upon force and fraud and maintained by military occupation against the declared will of the people. The Irish Republic was proclaimed in Dublin on Easter Monday 1916 by the Irish Republican Army acting on behalf of the Irish people. The Irish people is resolved to secure and maintain its complete independence in order to promote the Commonwealth, to re-establish justice, to provide for future defence, to ensure peace at home and goodwill with all nations, and to constitute a national polity based upon the people's will with equal right and equal opportunity for every citizen. At the threshold of a new era in history, the Irish electorate has in the general election of December 1918 seized the first occasion to declare by an overwhelming majority its firm allegiance to the Irish Republic. Now, therefore, we, the elected representatives of the ancient Irish people in National Parliament assembled, do, in the name of the Irish nation, ratify the establishment of the Irish Republic and pledge ourselves and our people to make this declaration effective by every means at our command. We ordain that the elected representatives of the Irish people alone have power to make laws binding on the people of Ireland and that the Irish Parliament is the only Parliament to which that people will give its allegiance. We solemnly declare foreign government in Ireland to be an invasion of our national right which we shall never tolerate, and we demand the evacuation of our country by the English garrison. We claim for our national independence the recognition and support of every free nation in the world, and we proclaim the independence to be a condition precedent to international peace hereafter. In the name of the Irish people, we humbly commit our destiny to Almighty God, who gave our fathers the courage and determination to persevere through long centuries of a ruthless tyranny, and strong in the justice of the cause which they have handed down to us, we ask his divine blessing on this last stage of the struggle we have pledged ourselves to carry through to freedom. It wasn't until Cahalbrew read this a second time through that those journalists and foreign observers actually grasped what he was saying. That is because, uniquely in Irish political history, a great portion of the meeting, including Brewer's opening address, was conducted in Irish. The second reading of the Declaration of Independence, which I just read out there, was in English, and then the third in French. Significantly for the period, Brewer did not stop talking to the audience after this declaration. The message to the free nations of the world was the next step, 
and with this additional speech, it was shown by the Irish rebels that they fully grasped the weight of the circumstances in which they lived. It wasn't enough to simply proclaim Irish independence, other nations must be welcomed to recognise this independence. It was predicted that Britain would hold out from accepting this latest chapter in Irish resistance to British rule, and it was therefore essential that one of the first steps which this first doll made was one of gathering like-minded nations together to recognise the Irish claims. The more nations that jumped on the bandwagon of Irish recognition, the harder it would be for London to ignore or discount what Sinn Féin had just done. The message to the free nations of the world read as follows. The nation of Ireland, having proclaimed her national independence, calls through her elected representatives in Parliament assembled in the Irish capital on January 21st, 1919, upon every free nation to support the Irish Republic by recognising Ireland's national status and her right to its vindication at the Peace Congress. Before we look at the rest of the speech, it's important to pause here and emphasise the very real fact of the Irish situation in 1919. This was not an isolated or insular movement, cut off from the rest of the world. Ireland and its statesmen were connected, and were well aware of what was going on in Paris. These Sinn Féin politicians knew that representatives from other nationalities were en route to Paris to attain recognition. So long as this recognition did not embarrass the Allies, it was likely they would be successful. Thus, the Irish representation had to be skilful, tactful and persistent, if it was to break through the British stonewalling. The speech in the doll continued. Nationally, the race, the language, the customs and traditions of Ireland are radically distinct from the English. Ireland is one of the most ancient nations in Europe, and she has preserved her national integrity, vigorous and intact, through seven centuries of foreign oppression. She has never relinquished her national right, and through the long era of English usurpation, she has in every generation defiantly proclaimed her inalienable right of nationhood down to her last glorious resort to arms in 1916. Internationally, Ireland is the gateway of the Atlantic. Ireland is the last outpost of Europe towards the West. Ireland is the point upon which great sea routes between East and West converge. Her independence is demanded by the freedom of the seas. Her great harbours are empty and idle solely because English policy is determined to retain Ireland as a barren bulwark for English aggrandizement, and the unique geographical position of this island far from being a benefit and a safeguard to Europe and America, is subjected to the purposes of English policy of world domination. Ireland today reasserts her historic nationhood the more confidently before the new world, emerging from the war, because she believes in freedom and justice as the fundamental principles of international law, because she believes in a frank cooperation between the people for equal rights against the vested privileges of ancient tyrannies, because the permanent peace of Europe can never be secured by perpetuating military domination for the profit of empire, but only by establishing the control of government in every land upon the basis of the free will of a free people, and the existing state of war between Ireland and England can never be ended until Ireland is definitely evacuated by the armed forces of England. For these, among other reasons, Ireland resolutely and irrevocably determined at the dawn of the promised era of self-determination and liberty that she will suffer foreign domination no longer. She calls upon every free nation to uphold her national claim to complete independence as an Irish Republic against the arrogant pretensions of England, founded on fraud and sustained only by an overwhelming military occupation, and demands to be confronted publicly with England 
at the Congress of the Nations, in order that the civilised world, having judged between English wrong and Irish right, may guarantee to Ireland its permanent support for the maintenance of her national independence. Throughout the length of the Paris Peace Conference, the Irish continued to lobby to secure an audience with Woodrow Wilson and to agitate for recognition from those powers who were assembled. We will certainly have cause to revisit their efforts in later episodes. While the proper analysis of this event and the War of Independence, which sprang from it, are events near and dear to my heart, obviously enough, I feel it would be woefully out of place if I launched into a multi-part series on the War of Independence for Ireland now. Don't worry though, we will revisit the Irish situation and give them their proper send-off in a later episode. Before we look in a bit more detail at the event in Dublin itself, it is worthwhile to consider a significant fact about the Irish in 1919. The Irish were the only European people who apparently were not deserving of independence in this fateful year. Wilson could say all he wanted about self-determination, but it was clear that this concept was conditional and not as liberal or straightforward as the president might have claimed. Someone who recognised this was Erskine Childers, a Republican who would later be executed for his role in the Irish Civil War. On the 5th of May 1919, Childers wrote a letter to the Times and in the process it broke open the careful shell which Woodrow Wilson had chosen to surround his self-determination yoke in. It was a further blow against the president's ideology, even if maybe the president wasn't all that aware of it, and in this context it also served to highlight the unfairness of the Irish situation. Among other things, Childers wrote, Ireland is now the only white nationality in the world where the principle of self-determination is not, at least in theory, conceded. The meeting of the first doll had been laced with symbolism, from the language used, Irish and only Irish unless making an address, to the very name of its assembly. The term doll was taken from Ireland's medieval past and meant council of elders, but many of those assembled were not old or all that radical in outlook. Some believed politics would win out and that by taking legitimacy from the British establishment in Ireland, the Irish people would complete the revolution peacefully and the British would be too embarrassed to stop them. Others saw this act as a publicity stunt by Sinn Féin. Indeed, in many respects, it had been. The guests of this first doll were effectively bribed with a grand dinner in their honour after the gathering. Incredible though it sounds now, Sir John French had commissioned one of the guests to write an account of the proceedings, but he never saw any need to interrupt this direct challenge to the British establishment. Such a lax attitude towards the first doll was more a reflection of French's refusal to take the first doll seriously, rather than his tendency to not treat challenges of British authority seriously, per se. Still, even though French was holding back the dogs, this didn't mean that Sinn Féin had gotten away with the act. It had been remarkably well attended, considering the lack of advertising and short notice, but this gathering had the potential to ignite a war between Sinn Féin and the British. This time, if a war happened, the Sinn Féin organisation would enjoy much greater support from the island of Ireland, and her members would not be launching a blood sacrifice, but a guerrilla war which they believed they could win. Inflammatory, though the illegal Irish assembly appears on the surface, it was not this political act that ignited a new round of hostilities between these old antagonists of Ireland and England. Instead, it was unquestionably the eruption of violence many miles away from Dublin, on the very same day that these grand speeches were being made, which had the greatest impact upon what followed. 
solo head bag, a town near Tipperary, was about to play host to the opening shots of Ireland's War of Independence. John McCormack stood side by side President Wilson as the Mayflower, the presidential yacht, sailed down the Potomac to George Washington's plantation at Mount Vernon. The day was one of great significance for the President, Independence Day, and the second one where the United States had been at war. As wreaths were laid by George Washington's tomb, John McCormack sang Battle Hymn of the Republic as the audience looked on. It was not certain whether these onlookers had journeyed so far because of the day that was in it, because they wanted to see their president, or because they wanted to catch a glimpse of one of the best and brightest stars in music that the world had to offer. John McCormack was fortunate to have a good agent, who transformed him from an obscure opera singer into a box office phenomenon whose concert tickets were as rare as hen's teeth. Of course, John wouldn't have gotten far without his talents, which were considerable. By 1918, indeed, he was still riding the wave of his greatest and most durable hit, one which he wrote overnight following a bet by a Birmingham Music Hall entertainer in 1912. From such unremarkable beginnings was arguably the theme song of the Great War born, It's a Long Way to Tipperary. The song had been released in November 1914, and within a month, the lonely lament of an Irish emigrant in London who yearned to see his Tipperary sweetheart had captivated listeners the world over. But significantly, it had also captivated soldiers, and it came to be seen as the song of patriots. 10,000 copies of the sheet music were sold every day in these early months. Soldiers sang it in London on their way to the front. In Dublin, a city bathed in Union Jacks and declarations of loyalty, During the first few months of the war, volunteers had adopted it effectively as their theme song as they were waved off to Kingstown, modern-day Dunleary, and to the front line themselves. When an American journalist visited the British capital for the performance of Tommy Atkins, that rousing wartime musical, he noted that only the singing of It's a Long Way to Tipperary managed to truly rouse the audience to new heights of patriotic fervour. More amusingly, when a senior French parliamentarian met with his counterparts to celebrate Ireland's entry into the war, he tended to get to the bottom of the song. Was Tipperary the promised land, asked the Frenchman, where Paddy would find peace and happiness? He wasn't the only one taken with a reference to this obscure Irish town. One London newspaper actually sent its own photographer and reporter crew to Tipperary to find out what all the fuss was about with Tipperary. They discovered a town which provided a characteristic glimpse of Irish life. Tipperary, they said, was found to be quietly proud of its newfound fame and saw its association with the Western Front as evidence of its overall loyalty to the noble cause. Across County Tipperary itself, the various towns had put on their best patriotic face as they waved off their local men and boys, sending them on this incredible adventure which represented a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see the world and save it too. It was a classic story, represented across the island and within Britain as well, of course. Yet Tipperary's contributions and its later suffering during the war should not obscure the fact that, as elsewhere in Ireland, 
certain disgruntled individuals were not happy that Ireland was fighting Britain's war. One such individual was Dan Breen, who had worked for the Great Southern Railways only a year before the eruption of the war. This was not his war. Rather than fight for London, Irishmen should be fighting for their independence. What a shambles this was. Those that filed past for the front chanting that blasted Tipperary song wore at his patience. Dan and his close friends made it their mission to demonstrate that they were above the war enthusiasm which seemed to have driven their compatriots mad, even going as far as refusing to contribute to collections for wounded soldiers. Every other night, Dan Breen would drill with the small minority of Irish volunteers that had split from the larger movement and refused to follow the call of the Irish Parliamentary Party leader, John Redmond, to go to the front. This sense of being in a minority persisted until 1916, when the rising and its aftermath roused nationalist Irish opinion and made the country question its commitment, and then in spring 1918, when a desperate London government issued a demand for the conscription of all Irishmen over 18 years of age. Suddenly the ranks of Dan Breen's minority group began to swell with the times. There was talk of preparing to fight the British, of stockpiling supplies and medicine in caves, of drilling with weapons, of storming the barracks. Cahill Brewer, later to read out the speeches near the beginning of this episode, communicated a plan to assassinate leading members of the British government. It seemed as though the island was on the cusp of a conflict which Breen so longed for. The struggle would be bloody and costly, but he believed that even with the death of several millions, yep, the unity and resilience which would be forged together thereafter would be worth the price paid in blood. What a lovely idea. Just as it seemed so tantalisingly near though, the tension began to recede. After assessing the situation in Ireland and on the improving Western Front, London decided it wasn't worth all this trouble and backed off on its plans to introduce conscription in Ireland. Where once Dan's compatriots had been so animated, so apparently ready to fight for freedom, now the numbers dwindled once more. Disgruntled and frustrated, the occasion of the December 1918 general election provided another opportunity to fight back, this time with politics. Dan Breen and his mates cycled across the countryside, hurriedly painting slogans on landmarks or on buildings which urged all of County Tipperary's natives to vote for the Republic, to stand by the men of 1916, or to rally to Sinn Féin. The political result was phenomenal, but when the guns still did not fire, Dan believed more would have to be done. Politics would not be enough. The country would have to be placed on a war footing against the British. In collusion with the local commander of the Irish Volunteers in Tipperary and a handful of other men, on the 21st of January 1919, Dan Breen planned to ambush a wagon carrying gelignite intended for blowing the rocks at a nearby quarry in the town of Solohead Beg, a journey of three miles. This was a small window of success, and the wagon was known to be defended by two Irishmen in the British police force, the Royal Irish Constabulary. The ambush was destined to be a brutal but brief affair. Dan and his friend had refrained from telling their commander beforehand that whatever happened, even if the two Irishmen guarding this gelignite surrendered, they still intended to shoot these two men, because only by killing someone could a war between Britain and Ireland be ignited. The only regret we had following the ambush, said Breen three decades later, was that there were only two policemen in it instead of the six we expected because we felt that six dead policemen would have impressed the country more than a mere two. Yet something which Breen and his peers were forced to admit in the aftermath was that the country was anything but impressed. The senseless killing horrified Tipperary locals 
as well as Sinn Féin representatives, and the act was condemned by the Catholic Archbishop, the coroner, and a local priest. The latter had remarked, prophetically, that It used to be said, where Tipperary leads, Ireland follows, but God help poor Ireland if she follows that lead of blood. Dan Breen recalled in the aftermath that he and his peers were on the run for several weeks, and nobody wanted to shelter them after what they'd done. Ireland, evidently, had not been prepared to fight the British, especially when that meant killing Irishmen employed by the British establishment. Even the more radical Irish volunteer commandant in Dublin was cautious, though he did believe, like Breen, that Ireland could only be freed through a war with Britain. Interestingly and revealingly, outcry against the murder of two policemen was more a result of the innocence and good reputations of the two men, rather than due to a lack of enthusiasm for agitation against Britain. Many civilians, volunteers and Sinn Féiners would not condemn the act, although others certainly did. The country was somewhat divided. It was unpalatable to shoot and kill family men who were just doing their job, and who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yet, what would happen when a known critic of Sinn Féin and a senior detective of the Royal Irish Constabulary was assassinated? Breen's ambush certainly did not unite the country or rouse its nationalistic enthusiasms, but it did show that certain portions of opinion were willing to go along with the act. Efforts by the British to get information about Breen and his peers went down like a lead balloon, as did the promise of a £10,000 reward. Horrified at the act, though they certainly were, it would have been difficult indeed to find an Irish person willing to be labelled as an informer for the British, notwithstanding the large reward. The grey area existed where the target for assassination was British rather than Irish, or where an Irishman had clearly worked against Irish interests, at least as the majority perceived them. Thus the volunteers became more effective in singling out targets that would not put them under condemnation, and which might force Irish people to take sides. One of the first such targets killed was a British magistrate in Mayo, who had sent volunteers to prison on several occasions for drilling in the streets. In June, a senior detective of the Royal Irish Constabulary was assassinated while presiding over horse racing. He had been a known opponent of Sinn Féin during his 30-year career, and had made a habit of breaking up nationalist meetings. The killing in this case seemed justified, at least in the circumstances of the time. Then the British establishment determined to work once more from its fundamentally flawed hymn sheet of 1916 and to respond to these acts with repression. In July 1919, Sir John French, who had no real business being governor of anything, decided that it made perfect sense to outlaw Sinn Féin, the Volunteers, the Gaelic League and other nationalist organisations. As Dan Breen had suspected, the British would walk right into the trap once again and would do much of the work for them. As tensions mounted, a man by the name of Michael Collins began recruiting assassins to execute senior detectives, known as G-Men, who had been tasked with harassing and prosecuting Sinn Féin gatherings now that the movement was illegal. It does not take a political scientist or psychologist to ascertain why anger against the British establishment only increased during the summer of 1919. By acting in this way, Sir John French did not just outlaw Sinn Féin, he also outlawed the political organisation which Irish people en masse had voted for in the previous general election. By doing so, he vindicated the warnings of those volunteers and Republicans who had claimed that Britain would never allow Ireland to have proper political representation and that the only way for Ireland to truly gain its independence was through force. 
That said, the violence over the course of 1919 was conducted sporadically and without any real plan. The new Irish government declared on this day in history 100 years ago, and the violence which occurred on that same day did serve to demonstrate a key fact about the state of the island. Politics and violence, for so long at opposite ends of the spectrum of Irish political identification, could no longer be separated, to the extent that manifestations of both occurred on the same day. The intertwining of violence, the attack on Solo Head Beg, with politics, the declarations of independence at the first doll, represented in the end a sign of things to come. Although 1919 was a year of unplanned, mostly unconnected, violent acts against the British establishment, the ambush at Solo Head Beg is still recognised as the beginning of what would become the War of Independence. As we will see in later episodes indeed, this first official year of the Anglo-Irish War demonstrated that the Irish, far from insular and isolated, were more interested in representing their cause to the rest of the world. Irishmen were thus sent to the different corners of this changing world throughout 1919, but there existed no greater opportunity for the satisfaction of the Irish mission of recognition than at the most significant gathering of nations which the world had ever seen, the Paris Peace Conference. In such a manner would the double-edged sword of violence and politics be wielded. Only time could tell what impact this weapon would inflict not merely on Ireland, but also upon the world in which she lived. <laughs>